One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You would go down to the Strand or anywhere along the Thames in uh, London and there would be bookshops every couple of yards. There would be like vape shops now or something. And basically, <laughs> and, and there was yeah. a universal sort of thirst for knowledge. Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions brought to you by History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Hey, summer is in the air today. I know that not because the weather is nice, but because I can hear that really annoying low drone. You might just be able to hear it. It's moved away a bit. The low drone of a leaf blower, which is my least favourite sound in the world. And I kind of think we should do an episode on useless inventions, of which the leaf blower for me comes in at number one. Um, We're not talking about leaf blowers today. We're going to talk about the origins of something I love the encyclopedia. I grew up with encyclopedias. I absolutely love them. For me, of course, the greatest encyclopedia was a fictional encyclopedia, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I remember reading it as a kid and thinking, that would be the best thing ever. Imagine an encyclopedia in digital form that you could, I don't know, maybe carry around in your pocket that had all the world's knowledge in it that constantly updated itself. That's never going to happen. But, of course, there'd be no Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy if no one had invented the encyclopedia in the first place. So where did the first encyclopedia come from? Who had that great idea? For that, we have to go back, as ever, to the Enlightenment. And someone called Ephraim Chambers. Ephraim lived in London and was convinced that there were already far too many books in the world. It reminds me actually, there was a, a scientist called Conrad Gessner, Swiss scientist, who had a similar complaint. He was thinking, you know, God, there's too many books in the world, there's too much information overload, and this is very, very bad for the human brain. It's a familiar sounding thesis, but of course, Conrad Gessner was writing at the time of the invention of the printing press. And so those moral panics that come along with technology seem to have been with us forever. Anyway, Ephraim lived in London, convinced there were far too many books in the world, and reasoned to himself, surely there should be one book, just one great book that would contain all the information that you need, and that would replace all the others, and that would save a lot of shelf space, a lot of dust, etc., etc. So his encyclopedias, which he did, he went on and did this, were an absolute smash hit. And it was soon followed by others. And over the next three centuries or so, encyclopedias ascended. And amazing people contributed to them. People like Albert Einstein, Alfred Hitchcock, Marie Curie, Sigmund Freud, all wrote for encyclopedias in their spare time when they weren't doing other brilliant things. They really became 
sacred tomes that contained all the knowledge in the world until, of course, the internet, which kind of rendered printed encyclopedias obsolete. Is that a problem? Did we lose something when we said goodbye to the printed encyclopedia? What does that mean? Well, my guest today to help tell this story is Simon Garfield. He's the author, among many other excellent books, of the book called All the Knowledge in the World, The Extraordinary History of the Encyclopedia. And we had a wonderful chat. And here it is. Hello, Simon. Thanks for stopping by. I just realised something, actually. I was going through... I've got loads of encyclopedias as well, like you do. And I was... I get really, really upset when I look at children's encyclopedias that I have and I find mistakes. I feel like I've been lied to. My space encyclopedia, for example, it reliably informs me that the first American in space was John Glenn. And it wasn't John Glenn. It was Alan Shepard. And now I feel... Uh, yeah, these are, these are big things to get wrong, aren't they? Really? They are, but I... Because but, my whole childhood was... I, I loved encyclopedias. Yeah, I have the, kind of sort of Proustian memories when I look at these sort of children's encyclopedias, the pictures and stuff. They were obviously very important to me. It was little... Actually, reading, looking at your book, just in the, the introduction, I was just look, looking at it again. You have a very nice kind of footnotes where you talk about the smells of encyclopedias. There's one that you bought recently that smelled like an armpit and one that smelled like yeah, fish. Yeah, you have this sort of limbic brain sense memory of smell of... Um... Well, the, the ones that smell of fish and armpit, uh, I can't take full responsibility for because no, these are the ones that not I your bought, armpit, so I should have. Yeah, exactly. I blame the sellers. Armpits all over the world I've now got piled up. How many do you have? Oh, God. Um, I... Um, it sounds, <laughs> Dallas, this is nothing to do with you, but it does sound like the most, most philistine question in the world because you kind of think it's like postage stamps. I've got a thousand. Are they worth anything? No, they're terrible. You know, it's like that. I've got about 80 something piled up high. I did Crikey. actually count them at the end of the book. But I mean, that's uh, all of those have accrued in the course of the, um, of the research, of course. I think before I began the book, I just had uh, two full sets of Britannica. And then after that, I got a bit nuts and said, oh, no, I've got to have at least one volume of, you know, Grolier's and one volume from 1881 or whatever. So um, my, my wife sighed as they more and more... And actually, the, my wife sighed, but the, the, the person, the, the DPD driver was also clearly visibly shaken when he had to deliver more and more of these piles <laughs> through the door. The interesting thing, I suppose, that you, that you mention is that you know, you buy you personally buy all these things on eBay and for one pence. Like they they seem to be valueless in terms of monetary now, and yet for you, well, for you and me and people like me, there's the something. Has, the encyclopedias have a great deep meaning, which we'll which we'll get into. Yeah, people can't get rid of them fast enough, which I think is a real shame. So obviously, it is true we can get a huge amount of information on our phones and Wikipedia, if we just want to use that, obviously has an app on our phone. So people then think, well, why do we need to fill, you know, our, our entire living room with 34 volumes of 
whatever it was that I've inherited that I never open anyway. Up to a point it makes sense. And obviously, as you said, we'll talk about the value of actually hanging on to them. But it is extraordinary. And, and charity shops won't really take them because they take up too much space there and they don't sell. Um, you can't really burn them because that's a, or, or an awful thing. You can never burn books. So what do you do with them? You put them on eBay and you sell them. You know, it's, it is sort of the fight to the bottom. And uh, yeah, so I picked some up for a ridiculous price. And, and then the, the nicest set that I've got, because I didn't have the last printed edition of Botanica, the, so the very last sort of re-edited, republished volume from, I think, 2012, I picked up. I think there was an auction on eBay and uh, the, the, the starting price was 30 quid and I bid, I don't know, 42. But of course it went for 30 and I spent more on petrol driving mm. down to Cambridge, <laughs> Cambridge, of course, to, uh, to pick them up. And my, my poor Toyota has never forgiven me. Okay, let's get the kind of basic structure, the parameters, the encyclopedia. When? When was? Is there such a thing as the first? Why did it happen? What was the? Let's let's go. Let's start with all that stuff. Okay. Well, okay. I have a good encyclopedia joke that isn't in the book. When I was at school, Dallas, um, you're familiar with this the idea of truth or dare well we just had dare basically where we had to <laughs> we basically just had to do things um, at school and it came around so we would I don't know you know one of them would be find a teacher's home address and say, send them stuff mine was to try and steal from the school library an entire set of encyclopedias so uh, obviously the only way to do this was to do it volume by volume and I would put them in my whatever it was, you know, rucksack and take them home. And gradually, obviously, the librarians would sort of see what was going on. So they kept an eye on, on who would take them. And then finally, I got all, you know, 12 volumes of the set home, the junior encyclopedia set home. And then, of course, the police came around. <laughs> and there was a couple of guys. And I said to them, I said to them, it's all right, chaps, I can explain everything. <laughs> There you go. Sorry about that. That's actually I'm, a fun. I'm here for, I'm here for the next. Joke. I'm here for the next forty minutes. Is all I can yeah, say. You've yeah, you've got a whole stand-up career there, Simon. That's good. Are we going back to like Doctor Johnson and his dictionary, like, or the beginning of the printing press? Where are we going? We, there, there are two places. One is sort of the word, which I suppose you know, ancient Greece, uh, like everything else, begins there. So the meaning of the word uh, comes from. Two Greek words, enkikliospedia, or pedia, perhaps, which means learning within the circle or, or knowledge in the round. And, and mm. it was an idea that, so before you had the books, you had the concept, which was an all-round education. And that's where the word um, comes from. The first encyclopedia that I think we can call an encyclopedia was from, uh, compiled by Pliny the Elder, in 79 AD, um, just before the eruption of uh, Vesuvius. And that was called the Naturalis Historia, the natural history. It was 37 books. Now, obviously, the concerns, if you were Pliny the Elder, were not, um, you know, they weren't, they weren't so much facts and they weren't so much uh, achievements and they certainly weren't uh, biographical entries. They were thematic. So he would be interested in rhetorical issues. They would be interested in botany, the gemstones, those kind of things. And that was continued by his uh, nephew, Pliny the Younger. And it, we can read it uh, even now, or almost all of it anyway. And it, it does go from 
you know, it does cover astronomy to zoology, but it didn't do it in alphabetical order. And uh, there was no sort of index, there's no sort of cross-reference. So it was an assemblage of uh, knowledge in, in the world, mostly drawn from books, other books, which was the tradition when the modern encyclopedia began. So, I mean, you know, during that time, there were, in the subsequent sort of 15 centuries until we get to the first modern encyclopedia, there were lots of attempts, but the modern encyclopedia, lots of attempts rather to gather information, but the modern encyclopedia that we understand it, I think began in 1728. This is the, the kind of the general view that it began uh, in London with something called the Cyclopedia, so no E-N at the, at the top of it. A man called Ephraim Chambers in, as I said, sort of early 18th century, thought that there were already many, too many books in the world. And he thought, well, what we actually need is one book or a couple of books um, to sort of compile everything. You know, this was at the time of, um, you, you would go down to the Strand or anywhere along the Thames in uh, London and there would be bookshops every couple of yards. There would be like vape shops now or something. And basically <laughs> it was kind of hard to hard not to buy something. And, and there was yeah. a universal sort of thirst for uh, knowledge as well. With Chambers, isn't, that's, not cha- that's not Chambers as in the dictionary. No, it's, chamber, not, no it's not. It's not the almanac um, guys. There seemed to be a kind of fear at that time of, I think it's the Swiss writer, the scientist, Conrad Gessner, talked about that overload of information about how, you know, this idea of too many books and too much information will be the ruination of human beings and we will lose our oral storytelling traditions and all that kind of stuff. That sort of techno fear, was it, you know, we have that now when we think about AI and and such. Do you think it was a similar sort of thing? Information overload. Inf- yeah. We sort of, I mean, it was... It was a commercial concern as well. So he, he kind of thought, well, actually, what I can do, which, and he admitted this, is I can just cut and paste all the books that I can buy, juiciest bits and juiciest facts, and put them yeah. in, you know, uh, one book. And, you know, that's sort of all we need. And it was sold as, as such as well. You know, it's, as we talked at the beginning, you know, the, the idea of, of filling your shelves with all these books. No, the, 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 you don't need to do this anymore because it's all combined. And, and this would be, you know, a huge amount yeah. of information about the, about the world as it was known then. And obviously travellers coming in with all sorts of tales and, and, and all yes. that. But he admitted that um, it was sort of plagiarism and a cut and paste job. And he would essentially you know fillet books that were already out there but he he dismissed the idea of plagiarism and said um he, he took everything in the open therefore it wasn't theft quite yeah, right so if you do if you do it <laughs> and um you credit other people then fair enough i'm not sure he did exactly. credit other people but at least he didn't claim <laughs> that it was original yeah. original work and then what happened is that the encyclopedia really took off and the concept of encyclopedia took off so about about 20-something years yeah. later, the, the French Encyclopédie began uh, in Paris, 1751, for the next 20, 30 years. And that was the first big multi-volume, alphabetized encyclopedia uh, edited by Denis Diderot, who you will know, and Jean-Laurent d'Alembert, who was a, a French philosopher as well. And they initially thought, well, actually, all we need to do is copy the, the Chambers um, Cyclopedia 
and we'll do a French version and we'll include French interests. And what they found was actually, well, hang on a minute, we, we have way more information than we can fit in. And also we can write a lot of this ourselves because we can get in people like Voltaire, which they did, and, uh, and, and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau as well. And the, the idea was, um, gosh, you know, we do live in interesting times, don't we? This was, you know, 1750s, 1760s, pre-revolution but things were fermenting already. So why don't we write about this? Why don't we write about it in very liberal terms? And why don't we make it slightly political as well? And so that's what they did. And it became, you know, half information and, 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 and half propaganda, half tracked right. in a way. The Ephraim, am I pronouncing his name? Is it Ephraim? Ephraim, Ephraim, Ephraim I think. Ephraim yeah. Chambers. Yeah. Just tell us, I don't know if, does a copy exist of that? I'd like to know kind of what it looked like and what was the kind of stuff that was in it. And how he set it yeah, out. That was a, a huge thing. I mean, I'm, I'm consulting my own book now, and I will, uh, yeah. I will t- tell you. That's the secret you. of writing books, is you can consult <laughs> them, because you, you don't have to remember the things. that. Uh, so he called it... It's, it's interesting, actually, because he knew that by doing an alphabetical uh, book, it would sort of be compared to a uh, dictionary. So he did call it a universal dictionary. And accounts of the things signified thereby in the several arts, both liberal and mechanical, sciences, human and divine, things natural, artificial, blah, blah, blah. So the single sort of illustration for me that makes it work as an encyclopedia rather than just a dictionary is they've got a fantastic back and front illustration of um, the human body stripped, not quite a skeletal form, so there is still skin on. And basically... It's a numbered thing, which I imagine did exist before, but maybe not in this kind of detail. And it's a medical definition of all parts of the body and and what they do and sort of how they're connected as well. And that tells you something about the encyclopedia because it's illustrated that maybe a dictionary couldn't and the value of having something like that. So it does have a slightly kind of almanac kind of element. Yes, the illustrations for me, are really, really important, I think, certainly as growing up with encyclopedias. Yeah, and, and sort of there there are sort of, you know, there's entries on earth and earthquakes and, you know, those kind of, of things. And mm. he called it a commonplace book, um, a gathering of relevant, significant and arresting things. And, yeah, yeah he did say, as I said, you know, the only library um, that you'll ever need turned out not to be the case, I think. No, but but what was his ambition? Was his ambition to create an, an almanac of the sum of all human knowledge at the time, or was it very much just a bit of a pick and mix? It was a bit of both, but the other element of that was that which one one shouldn't underestimate really in in all of this is that you know we tend to see encyclopedias as very noble efforts to to gather you know all the info in one place but actually they were commercial concerns from the beginning so he definitely saw it Mm. as that uh, as did the great uh, French encyclopedia editors as did the early botanica people as well and it it was very much a case of okay so this is useful this is something that people will value but it's 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 also something that we can charge needs to sell quite a lot for (laughs) and and it will sell and it began um i mean both uh, the encyclopedia and the botanica began as part works 
And uh, it was those things that we remember from kids, which actually I imagine are still going now. Yeah, well, children's encyclopedias or almanacs that you get now are very heavy on things like space and dinosaurs, presumably because they know that that's the thing that's going to sell rather than other subjects. Space dinosaurs in Egypt (laughs) always seem to be feature prominently. Anything with illustration of Tutankhamun on the front is going to do do all right. Um, Yeah, I mean, not a million miles from that, really. But the idea of the part work was kind of interesting. And that's where the the popularisation of the part work, you know, the idea that, you know, you can build a spaceship in um, 26 editions. And in the first two editions, you get these wonderful free gifts. And then after that, you're kind of hooked because you have to hang on to the last edition to, to get the last tiny yes. bit of it. I mean, Britannica is a classic example of that. They loaded almost all the good stuff in the early part of the alphabet. So having decided mm. that they would go um, alphabetical, which was a big debate at the time. because <laughs> yes. um, Lots on aardvarks. Yeah, aardvarks and aardvark. uh, Abyssinia <laughs> featured heavily in there. Really. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the, the, um, the idea of that was you would get people hooked early on. This is another commercial thing. So there was a big intellectual debate. Do we go alphabetical, uh, which is a, a clearly a very smart way of ordering information, but it's also a bit nonsensical because Abyssinia actually has nothing to do with aardvark. So why are they next to each other? Why don't we have um, aardvark in a huge section entitled animals or something? And Abyssinia, in, you know, when, when, when we look at countries. Uh, but in fact, what happened was they decided that the only way we can actually order information, so much information across what were initially, as I say, part works, which were only a few pages each before they were combined into volumes, was to do it um, alphabetically. And there was a big kind of, you know, there, there was a, a certain amount of outrage. Samuel Taylor Kohler it thought this was the most sort of philistine thing you could ever do with information is, is just to sort of break it up in this way. So Samuel Coleridge, as in... The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Yeah, he was. Um, he felt he could uh, do a much better uh, encyclopedia uh, by doing it in a thematic way. So the idea was, you know, it's nonsense to sum up the world in an alphabetized way because we don't do that in real life. Well, he's. I think he had a. He had a point. He's had a point, and he absolutely had a point. And he was. A, he was a great thinker and a massive opium addict. I think. Probably. I think he was, and he 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 did try and. Um, I mean, he didn't write it himself, but he was a great supporter and progenitor of something called the Encyclopedia Metropolitana, which unfortunately didn't last very long. And there are there are a few editions of it. And uh, that was going to be his big, you know, intellectual rival to Britannica, but uh, but but the alphabet one. I think Coleridge's encyclopedia would have been good. It would have been quite trippy. <laughs> would have been quite kind of far out, I think. <laughs> Interesting. A, 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 lots of um, occasional mentions of, of Kubla Khan, I think. Yes, well. exactly. Yeah, big, Z- Zanadu. big section and Xanadu would have a, yes. When it we get wouldn't to be X. at the end of the, of the book, would it? It would be right at the beginning, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, nice. We'll be back after this short break. Why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? 
And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? Well, I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, you mentioned sort of Voltaire. Who else was writing for encyclopedias? Or were the great writers a bit sort of snobbish about it? Because I know interesting people would contribute to throughout the age of encyclopedias. Exactly. I mean, in fact, the opposite um, came to be the case. So, you know, I, if, we, if we take sort of Britannica as a prime example, mm. what happened there in the early editions, it was also a case of sort of cut and paste uh, with the author's, you know, blessing often. So they would take, you know, there would be a great sort of medical textbook and they would take a chunk from that. But then what happened was that it became a badge of honour to be in the Britannica. So I've got a list here of incredible people who contributed pretty much from 1910 onwards. So you had... Alfred Hitchcock writing on motion pictures, Linus Pauling uh, writing about ice, yeah, Edward Weston, a photographer talking about photographic art, J.B. Priestley about on English literature, Jonas Salk on infantile paralysis, J. Edgar Hoover on the FBI. I mean, I can go on. Uh, Orville Wright writing about Wilbur Wright, um, John Pershing uh, writing about the Mers Argonne operation. Um, and who else? Gene Tunney on boxing. So it was extraordinary, really. And these people weren't necessarily great writers, but they were clearly masters of their art. Mm. They all got paid pretty much the same as well. So they got the wordage. They got, let me see, 1926, uh, George Bernard Shaw got 68 bucks for his article on socialism. And Albert Einstein got $86 
for his piece on space time. That's not bad. That's kind of not bad, actually. That's like more than I am getting from my. I, I shouldn't say that from my <laughs> publisher. <laughs> that's that's not bad on a, on a kind of wordish level. But I have to say, the space time. You know, the, the whole idea was okay, Albert. What we'd like you to do is explain relativity or you know, a uh, space-time conundrum in a few hundred words in layperson's terms. I mean, that was kind of the key. So anyone yeah. could understand it, but impossible. I mean, if you, you read the space-time entry and it's... it's Heavy going. It's very heavy, heavy going. <laughs> For him, it was like he was obviously pulling his hair out and thinking, this makes no sense, it's too simplified. But obviously everyone else was thinking, we, this makes no sense because it's impossible to understand. But a huge honour to be asked and very few people turned them down um you know if you were approached a bit like a getting something in the you know queen stroke king's honors you know and uh that was the ultimate recognition that you were the man you know it has a really sort of grand name doesn't it the encyclopedia britannica i mean was that is that a sort of deliberate thing to give it that sort of slightly grandiose, fancy name, to give it a, a prestige. I think it was sort of the the, the a very early, maybe unconscious uh, way of saying we sort of own the world, and this is our view of the world. And yes, that was sort yes, of yes, that yes. was very much the case of Britannica. I'd say up until. Oh, wow, you could say up until the, 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 the Second World War, or certainly up now? until the First World War. Yeah, you could almost say now, but I mean, certainly the feeling yes. of, of... British exceptionalism. British exceptionalism, ultimate imperialism. We know everything, and uh, you listen to us. Absolutely pertained, I, I think, probably until, you know, the loss of India, uh, I think, is, is the way you would say. Indi- Indian independence is a cooler way of looking at it, but they would see it as a loss of India. And it was mm. not just to do uh, down the Brits, but this is a... There were, there were massive sort of generalisations. So this showed how the world wasn't yet connected in the way we now regard the world as, 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 as one big connected uh, space. So this is from the French Encyclopédie, talking about various people around the world. And this is some of the least offensive stuff. It's just this is some of the peculiar stuff. Mm-hmm. So Greek women are more beautiful and more lively than the Turkish women. The Spanish <laughs> thin and fairly small they are finely made have handsome heads regular traits beautiful eyes well-arranged teeth men are more chaste in cold lands than in warm ones they are less amorous in sweden than in spain or in portugal it's fantastic sort of how generalizations of, of huge swathes of the world just sort of dismissed or summed yeah. up in you know in, in, in a few ways there's and, a book by um, kepler as in the physicist kepler Johannes Kepler called Somnium and that is from it I'm sure there's a bit about Spanish women and Turkish women and I should dig it out sorry it just reminded me of that sorry yeah it is interesting because you think well where does this information come from a lot of it is you know you you would have hoped would come from other worldly uh, accounts people you know traveling and saying i found this so it would it, you know someone would come back from you know the discovering the source of the nile and so the people that are like this and then that goes in the britannica mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. that would be 
almost certainly an incredibly kind of racist and, 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 and general view of yeah. people. But some of it, though, I think, in the, in the early days of uh, Britannica, um, had such a kind of, you know, imperialist, um, sort of holier-than-anyone view on the world that I think it just came from people's heads uh, as well. I think uh, some of it just was, you know, sort of made up factual stuff. So it's interesting because we, we obviously regard encyclopedias as the, you know, epitome of truth and, and fairness, mm. or, or the, at least that's how they were sold, you know, the, these are sort of non-judgmental things. Of course, closer reading now um, sort of exposes the opposite of that. Let's sort of wrap up with, I want to talk just briefly about the sort of end of encyclopedias and the coming of the digital age, because obviously the the, the elephant in the room with encyclopedias is as soon as they're published, they're, they're out of date. And did that matter then as it matters now? I mean, our constant source, I suppose the difference between information and wisdom has has changed. Yeah, that was always the case. I mean, you could argue, I suppose, there is more wisdom now in a good set of encyclopedias than there is on something like Wikipedia insofar as, you know, Wikipedia is a very, very kind of formulaic thing. You know, it's very ordered and it's written in a particular way. With Encyclopedia had, you could absolutely detect the the voice of the person uh, writing it, yeah. the individual yes. yeah. uh, yeah. element of that. And also, you know, a sort of um, much greater sort of depth of knowledge written by one, one person rather than everyone piling in, mm-hmm. both good and bad in that, I think. So mm-hmm. the death of encyclopedias we tend to think of as the obvious thing is Wikipedia and obviously I do talk quite a lot about Wikipedia and I talk to the people there at the end of the book but the death which I'm sure you'll remember Dallas was of course the CD-ROM so when that came in that was um, a very interesting thing because you could pack all the information, you know, talking about trying to sh- save shelf space, you could pack everything in, you know, maybe one CD-ROM, if, if not a couple, load it into your device and you'd have all these things. And obviously everyone was very entertained by this because you could have little clips of an Apollo mission and wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to, to have? You could have a video on your computer. Who ever had one of those before? You know, that was, that was a wonderful thing. And then, of course, what happened was... Uh, the internet and that really was uh, the death knell to to encyclopedias as we uh, as we know them i mean my big argument in the book was you know i wanted obviously tell the whole tale and 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 tell it in a accessible way but the the big argument is we sort of throw encyclopedias away at our peril and this isn't just an individual Mm. thing but it's also libraries doing this and big institutions because wikipedia wonderful as it is in so many ways god bless it you know i use it all the time i'm sure everyone listening now does as well incredible thing to check facts lots of errors lots of problems with it but gosh it's it's still an incredible thing it's an incredible thing it's pretty good and it's not the joke that it was you know um in the early days but uh what you don't get really unless you really want to you know, drill deep into the history of, you know, each entry, which no one has time for and is quite hard because it's a bit coded anyway. You don't get the idea of history developing over time. And that's the wonderful thing about encyclopedias. So we talked about, you know, the physical material element of it, the smell and the, you know, the spine and and often the beauty of them as well and the weight and all of that is a great thing, I think, in physical terms as someone who, uh, you know, is old enough to remember the world before internet. And so... You know, I'm very much a book person. But what you don't get is is how we viewed the world 
50 years ago, 100 years ago, 250 years ago. And that's what encyclopedias provide pretty much better than any other publication. So you get something from 1910, just before the war, 1911 was, was a classic 11th edition of Britannica, which is regarded as the most readable one, the one that you can take a volume to the loo and find something interesting in there, you know, in two minutes. And that's great, uh, a kind of, you know, generally readable thing. But of course, gosh, we were way too optimistic. We thought not only did we think Britain ran the world, but we also thought the world would only progress in wonderful ways. Wars were over, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And uh, how wrong we got that. Hitler, 1932, an edition comes out. Well, okay, he's a bit extreme, but, you know, quite a nice bloke. And he he knows how to run the economy. Gets the trains running on time. uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) sort of that. And and, and how interesting is that? Um, You know, how, how sad is that? But also, that has value. You know, so, you know, old scholarship, or rather, I think I say in the book, scholarship of any age is still scholarship. Prejudiced, it might be wrong, it might be correct, it might be in 80% of, of what encyclopedias contain. But isn't it interesting to look at how limited our knowledge was in certain ways um, and how much we got right and how much we got wrong? And that, I think, is what we lose when we just go to our phones. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. Simon, and I'm I'm happy you collect encyclopedias. Interestingly, my armpits smell of encyclopedias. <laughs> so there we are. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that little uh, meander through the origins of encyclopedias. Hope you enjoyed the show. Do go and listen to other episodes if you like, if you enjoyed that. Uh, don't forget to tell all your friends and your family about this series. As ever, we really appreciate it if you get in touch with us and tell us about episodes and ideas that you would like to us to explore or you'd like to find out a little bit more about. If there's any origin stories that you know that you think are brilliant that we haven't covered, get in touch. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com or you can give me a poke on social media. And I would love to hear from you and I look forward to your company next time. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code program. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive, 
and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.